Welcome to Work Better, the podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, Editor-in-Chief of Work Better Magazine. The rules of work are being rewritten, and we're all trying to figure it out. We invited leading thinkers like today's guest, David Rock, who's the CEO and co-founder of the Neural Leadership Institute, to share ideas and insights that can help us make sense of what's happening and how to navigate the massive change that we're going through. David coined the term neural leadership nearly 25 years ago, and he spent a lot of time studying Your Brain at Work, which is also the name of one of the four books that he's written, And the Neural Leadership Institute brings neuroscientists and leadership experts together to advise organizations on how to build new leadership skills and capabilities. So we're going to talk about the return to office, quiet quitting, what leaders need to learn as companies adopt hybrid work. And at the end of the conversation, stay with us because my friend and colleague, sociologist Dr. Tracy Brower, is going to join me to talk about the insights David shared and then connect it back to ways to make work better. Welcome, David. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because there's so much about work that is changing right now between hybrid work strategies, so we have more work happening away from the office, feels like the employer-employee contract is shifting, is people want something kind of fundamentally different in their relationship with work. And we've been exploring a lot about how the workplace could begin to feel more like a neighborhood, like these great places where people feel a sense of community. And so I wanted to ask you about the neuroscience of community. Like, how does having a feeling of community affect the brain? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, we, the brain is built to keep us alive. And the way that it does that is we, we, we sort of, the brain's organized where if there's something that's dangerous for you, you get an alert response in the form of like, pay attention, pay attention. It's, and pain is a kind of alert response, like something's not wrong, pay attention, right? But also you get this reward response of like, oh, there's something good over there. And the brain will tell you about potential rewards by kind of orienting your attention, right? So if you're walking in the woods and you hear a scary noise, that could be a, you know, a snake, for example, you'll immediately turn around and your heart rate will go up really quickly. But if you see like a you know, really pretty sight, you won't turn as quickly, but you'll, you'll orient your attention towards something that could be rewarding. So the brain's constantly tracking these, what we call threats and rewards all the time. And there's a network of primary threats and primary rewards, which is basically the pain and pleasure network mm-hmm. uh, that focuses you a lot, you know, like pain does. But there's a whole bunch of experiences in life that have kind of piggybacked on this pain and pleasure network. And one of those is basically a feeling of being connected safely with other people. Mm-hmm. And the hypothesis is that, you know, we evolved in times of small groups where, you know, your survival was dependent on being a trusted member of that fairly small group, it might be five, 10, 20, you know, people, something like that. And you know, when you felt safely ensconced in that group, you felt safe, you would, you know, you would live well. If you were cast out of that group, it was dangerous. You probably wouldn't survive on your own. So what's happened is we've evolved this brain that innately feels positive or reward responses when we're connected with others and actually feels like we are in danger when we're not connected with others. And there's a researcher who passed away a couple of years ago, John Cassiopo, 
from Chicago, amazing researcher, and he, he showed how loneliness is actually the brain's response to dangerously low resources in the same way as, as hunger is a pain response to dangerously low resources. And if you think that not having enough people around you is not dangerous, you know, you, you haven't been through really challenging times, like in a real crisis, you really need people around you. Yeah. In so many ways. So that's basically what's happening. So a community feels good as long as you have what we call shared goals with people. You've got right. trying to do similar things. Um, and then it's innately rewarding to be around a community. It feels good and it's innately threatening. Now, of course, people have different levels of this, though. Some people will say, well, hang on, I'm an introvert. I'm, you know, I really don't like a lot of people. But there are certain people that an introvert will feel safe with. And if they don't have those people around them, as much as normal, they'll still feel that pain response. That may be one or two people a week or a month. For other people, it's a lot more folks. But whatever your level is, we feel innately, intrinsically rewarded when we feel part of a community because it tells us we're going to be okay if things go wrong. There's research out there lately that's been talking about the value of having friendships at work. And that number of friendships at work is, seems to be going down. Like people are feeling maybe they're not having that same type of relationship that they had in the past. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I saw that just this week, actually, some more writing coming out about this and kind of the, you know, the work friendship is diminishing partly because we're not spending time together, going for lunch together, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're more at home. Partly it's the, the kind of contracts between the company and the individuals being strained. And I don't, I don't know that it's a healthy thing. I think people got a lot of their social needs from the workplace. I think people stayed in companies because they had a lot of, of colleagues that they felt needed them and the vice versa. Um, and so I think it provided a kind of bond. Now, you, know, you don't have to you know, force everyone back into the office to create that bond. That bond can be created still working virtually. But just, you just have to be a little more intentional about it. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think it's not a positive thing that there are fewer friendships at work, both from the employer's side, but also from the employee's side. You've got fewer social resources in, uh, in an emergency. There's also this phenomenon that, you know, I think leaders are starting to recognize, like they may not have had a term for it, but maybe they had kind of a, a leadership spidey sense that something was going on. And it's this term that came up on TikTok not too long ago about this idea of quiet quitting, mm. which feels like it could be a little bit about setting boundaries, but maybe also about engagement levels starting to drop off. What do you think about that? And how might a community or a sense of community at work help with that? Yeah, so we, we did a lot of research on engagement over the years. We published a paper on it a long time ago now, 2009. But essentially, engagement is the net state of that person as it relates to threat and reward, right? So someone who, if you, if you imagine threat and reward as a kind of horizontal arrow and put reward on the right, threat on the left, you know, someone who's engaged is on the right of the middle, mm -hmm. right? Someone who's slightly engaged, someone who's very engaged, you know, really passionate. They're experiencing strong rewards. They're leaning in. They have this resilience that comes from kind of having such a positive, optimistic state that, you know, bad things just kind of wash off them, mm -hmm. right? So, so strong engagement is on the right, you know, slightly engaged is sort of close to the middle. You've got people who are slightly disengaged. And then you've got a term that's out there, we didn't invent it, which is, you know, active disengagement. And that's, mm -hmm. that's someone who's really checked out. Maybe they're even saying bad things about the company. Maybe they're influencing other people. 
And I don't know that quiet quitting is quite that far. It's somewhere between sort of disengaged and actively disengaged. Mm-hmm. And, and it's essentially the person has really checked out. Now, it might be they're just experiencing such cognitive burnout from having to kind of process so much and their brains just kind of, they just can't do it any, any longer. They're physically kind of checked out and they're not getting enough rebound time. They're not getting enough rest mm-hmm. time to maintain the, the level. So that, you know, it could be that, it could be they feel that the company doesn't care about them, their manager doesn't care about them and they're just, you know, more psychologically, emotionally, you know, checked out. Could be driven by a few factors, but you definitely see, you know, the phrase burnout showing up as one of the biggest factors for employees. And interestingly, when I asked hundreds of senior leaders and, and talent executives in the last year, you know, the biggest skill gap for managers, the one that comes up over and over, it's a huge outlier, is empathy. Interesting. There's a real gap in managers and leaders at all levels being able to show real empathy for people. And I think that's part of the solution is people are going to have to be much better at showing care and caring and actively doing something to help people because folks have been, you know, in the biggest crisis of their lives in many situations. And I think that's part of the, the, the psychological kind of checking out that's happening. But for some people, it could be cognitively. They're just doing so much for, you know, five days a week, 12 hours a day. They just, their brain just, you know, isn't getting the rest it needs to rebound. Yeah. David, you were talking a minute ago about bringing people back into the office, which, you know, for some organizations, you know, has all gone very smoothly, but for other organizations, they're getting pushed back. It's a little bit of a, of a struggle. And, you know, when I was reading about your, your scarf model, I was kind of intrigued by that and wondering if some of the things in that model could pertain to why organizations are maybe struggling to get their people to want to come back into the office, even some of the time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And these five things are are the drivers of strong threats or strong rewards. So if you've got that horizontal line of threat on the left, reward on the right, SCARF is like under that. And each one of these can be either a negative or positive. Now, generally, the negatives are stronger so if you imagine that line as a seesaw, you know, if, if you attack someone's status by saying, hey, that was a dumb thing you just said, um, you know, at a meeting, you can't balance that out by saying, oh, by the way, but you're dressed well today. Like the, the negative is generally, you know, much more impactful than the positive. And that's, that's true for all threats and rewards in the brain. Generally, we pay more attention to that, you know, that snake we see makes us jump. You know, that pretty sight we see doesn't make us jump. But anyway, so SCARF describes the five things creating these really strong threats and rewards. And in particular, the A is a really important one to understand in this environment. So autonomy is a feeling of control. And what generally happens when the world becomes uncertain in any context, what we do is we, we our reflex action is to try to increase our sense of autonomy, our sense of control. We lean in and we try to control things. And, you know, over this pandemic, our sense of certainty massively plummeted. Mm-hmm. We also dropped our sense of relatedness. We, you know, we, we were around fewer people. We really struggled with relatedness, and we also felt really out of control. In that, you know, we didn't know what to do, what was going on. But there was this weird silver lining in that being allowed to work from home gave us this unexpected control over all sorts of things we'd forgotten were important. And they, were, they weren't just like when you work, which is a big thing to control now, or where you work, which is a nice mm-hmm. thing to control. They also was like how much sleep you could have now. 
and how much you could see your kids and when you could see your kids and, you know, being able to fit in an exercise routine and being able to control your social life, even your diet, because you're in one place all the time, you're much more in control of your diet. So, you know, diet, exercise, social life, family life and sleep. I mean, that's a pretty big set of things you're now in control of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kind of gave people unexpectedly control over this stuff. And unexpected rewards are really strong. So unexpected control over all this is really rewarding. But unfortunately, unexpected threats or having these, you know, this control taken away from us is even more threatening than the other is rewarding. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is people are feeling like they're losing control over things that really, really matter to them. And that's a problem. And when you realize that for a lot of people, this is family life, health, diet, exercise, sleep, as well as work, you go, oh, okay, no wonder they're reacting. And a lot of people obviously voting with their feet or they're, mm -hmm. you know, checking out. Now, with this situation, what you want to do is if you're creating a threat, you want to balance it out with multiple rewards. Interesting. You know, if you are going to do something with autonomy, if you are going to kind of take away control, you're going to have to do it in a way that puts some, some rewards on the other side, whether that's maybe to certainty or relatedness, which is shared goals or fairness, show you're doing it really fairly. But ultimately, you, you, you're probably going to want to soften that blow as much as you possibly can because it does feel like a blow, mm -hmm. like giving people more control than they expected over elements of the process. So maybe if you are requiring to come back in, maybe you can be flexible on the time or instead of saying we want you in three days a, a week, maybe you're willing to say we want you in 12 days a month and you can work out at a team level how you do that. Or maybe you can say, we want you in for the last week of the month, everyone, so we can all be together, but you can decide how many days a week, uh, you know, works at your team level otherwise. Like work out what you can be flexible on because right. the more things like that you can do, the better off everyone will feel. Yeah, those are really helpful strategies to think about. I want to go back to something you said earlier about leadership and skills, because I, I agree with you that I think empathy is a skill that we all need to develop. And I imagine there are a lot of skills that when you look at, at how much has changed about the way we are working, again, whether it's how we're working or what we're expecting from one another in that contract, what are some of those skills that you'd say leaders need now maybe more than they've ever needed before. And particularly like in this kind of hybrid work experiment. Yeah, we've been, we've been thinking about that a lot. So in my day job, heading up the Neuroleadership Institute, you know, we're, we're in the business of building habits at scale across large organizations, like 5 million people last year built new habits. So in any domain, we, we always think about what are the critical habits people need. And this time, there are a few that managers really have to anchor on. One of them, you know, we call it solve for autonomy, manage for fairness. So mm. as much as you can work out how you can give people autonomy in this time. And at the same time, really make sure it's fair between people and teams and all this stuff. And I, and I think that keeps people more motivated, feeling more engaged, offsets some of the challenges, whatever you're doing with your organizational plans, with letting people be at home or at the office, you, you want to do that in any of those situations. Another one that's really important is you've got to be really careful of shifting to that surveillance mindset that we've seen happen a lot. You know, if you're not going to see everyone every sure. day, be careful of the feelings that managers will have about wanting to feel more in control. And so if you don't see even some of your employees some days, you might be like, hey, send me a report at the end of every day of everything you did. And that 
that attacks people's sense of autonomy and status and fairness. Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm kicking out of the park. Why do you want this? Mm-hmm. So be careful. What, what happens is if you don't see people, it can affect you as the manager. It can affect your feelings of control and certainty and even status, right? So you might have a slight threat in these three, but the employee will have an even stronger threat to their sense of status and certainty and autonomy and fairness and relatedness. Like all five will be a negative if you start having this kind of surveillance mindset mm-hmm. or as some companies have started to do, you know, literally tracking keystrokes and seeing when people are offline. Yeah. There's yeah. a surprising number of companies that have been doing that in the pandemic. So it's really shifting from a surveillance mindset to an outcomes mindset. And we think that's a really, really important frame for any kind of hybrid work strategy that you're, you're really anchoring on outcomes and not on you know, monitoring and tracking anywhere near as much. And of course, there are people that will rot the system as there are when people are in the office. But so that, that's another set of habits. And then you know, there's also just how to work with people virtually. Um, there's a whole bunch of skills to making virtual meetings efficient, effective, productive, fun, engaging, as opposed to, you know, people just completely checking out. So let's talk about those situations where, where we are together, if we, we are in physical places with one another. Do you have a sense of what might be like the optimal environment and maybe it's not purely physical, maybe it's a combination of physical and virtual, but what is kind of this optimal environment if we want to maximize people's sense of, again, community and belonging? Yeah, it's a complex question because on the one hand, we're coming to the office because we want to see each other and, and collaborate and all this. On the other hand, the open office has some mixed research and essentially sure. it's driven the growth of you know big headphones. <laughs> Actually, research on this, that when you go open plan, people actually interact less because they're all on headphones all the time trying to focus and you just can't get around that. So it's not as simple as like, oh, let's all just go open. I think it comes back to autonomy. You want to give people choices. Do you want to work in a cafe style environment around people and some background music, no one talking too loudly on the phone? Do you want to work in a totally quiet environment where you can focus and there's sort of like a library environment? Do you want to work in a cubicle where you can make calls and be there? And, you know, do you want to switch it up? Ideally, a few different environments. Think of like a cafe environment, a library environment and the private environment and have enough space for people to mix it up. And then there's the, you know, then there's the team working together space where folks can collaborate and there's lots of whiteboard space. And that's also an environment. So I think it's about giving people some options. I mean, what we know about environments is the higher the roof, the, the clearer people can think, which is strange. You know, really low rooms mm-hmm. tend to make people think. Is that a neuroscience thing, David? Weirdly is. Like being able to see the horizon yeah. um, makes you more creative. Having a higher roof, a kind of more open space, helps you kind of think bigger thoughts, feel less anxious, more positive and optimistic, more creative. So, that, I mean, it's a subtle effect, but it has an effect. So, you know, ideally we want a few choices of environments and not be so directive and tell people, you know, you have to work this way. That, that's going to be the ideal. Well, I think that's fascinating. And I agree with you that having a lot more diverse kinds of spaces, not only gives you more autonomy, but actually feels more inclusive. You know, like people have choices to make based on what they need and how they like to work. So it can support all kinds of different people, right? Absolutely. You think of even the lunch space, like as you design, if you've got a big company, you know, medium or even large company, think about the lunch room where you have it's going to be great now to have big long tables so people can kind of hang out with peers. And if they're sitting at a big table, it can be called communal table. 
this is a sign that you'd be happy to chat with people and people can just hang out. And then you can have like, you know, private booths, which are more for private conversations or being on your own. And kind of these subtle signals give people an opportunity to choose how they want to be. And generally there's an inclination if we're in the office that we want to connect with other people, but there are also plenty of people who get there and just need to focus. So we want to be able to account for both. Yeah. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, David. I really appreciate your thoughts about neuroscience and the brain and how we connect with each other. So I just want to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here with us. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I, I love the work you guys do. And we've been thinking a lot over the years about designing environments. We've helped some organizations conceptualize environments. And the big variable is kind of autonomy and give people options and recognizing that some people really do need to focus and there's no substitute for a really quiet environment sometimes. And so, you know, making the workplaces better for humans is something we're excited about as well. So happy to, uh, happy to talk you know, with you guys more about that. Thank you. We are very excited about making the workplace better for humans. Again, thanks so much for joining us today, David. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. So I'm here now with Dr. Tracy Brower, and Tracy is the Vice President of Workplace Insights at Steelcase, and she's also the author of The Secrets to Happiness at Work, which I think we all need, so I highly recommend it. And uh, Tracy's also a contributor with Forbes and Fast Company and has been a great colleague, and um, we've done a lot of thinking together over the years, so I'm excited to talk about this with you. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things I found really interesting that David talked about was this idea of how we evolved to be in groups and how, you know, if you're in the group, you were safe, and but if you're out of the group, you're potentially in danger. And I thought it was really a compelling point that he connected that to loneliness. I hadn't really thought about that in terms of loneliness. And I know you've done a lot of thinking and talking about that. But you've also connected it to the actual workplace itself. Like, how do we think differently about the workplace? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, his points were so interesting there, right? About um, loneliness, like you were talking about, the need for belonging and connection. And I feel like work and the workplace end up having an expanded role for us to come together. Like in a mm. lot of ways, we don't see each other as much anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Like I might get a box from Target on my doorstep instead right. of going and talking to the person at Target at the checkout, or I might, you know, order my coffee on my apps. So I'm yeah. not having as many of those moments kind of day to day. So we connect with each other at work and we come together at work. And and the thing that I've been thinking about, too, is kind of the workplace can send us such cues about how we mm -hmm. come together, you know, like maybe there's a comfy place for us to grab a minute together and that invites us to spend time. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we don't have a dedicated workspace anymore, but we have a dedicated neighborhood. And mm -hmm. so we kind of know where to find our people and yep. we can find the people that we work with most easily and we can chat with them about both, you know, task and relationships relationship stuff and catch up and talk about the project that we're working on together. Yeah. So I feel like the workplace is such a place where we can connect and it can really make it easy to do that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because working at home, like I felt like I was getting a lot done. I didn't really think about that this feeling of loneliness until I actually got back into the office and I started seeing people that I hadn't seen, you know, that I didn't have a scheduled interaction with. 
but I could run into, like literally in the cafe, okay. um, you know, we talk about that, but literally running into people and being able to talk about things that I wouldn't have scheduled a meeting to have a conversation about what yoga classes are still around in town. But, you know, it was really great to have that kind of interaction. And, and I think the the space actually kind of gave me that cue that, you know, that you're talking about, that it was okay to just have those kind of casual conversations. Yeah, exactly. And there's really great research on those casual, superficial interactions and mm -hmm. how those are actually really correlated with happiness. Like, you know, we don't have to have deep, meaningful com or relationships with people in order to find them fulfilling, even right. just those bump into you conversations. And I think the interesting thing, too, is when those are threaded through your day, you know, like, like um, I get to to grab coffee between a meeting and run into somebody mm -hmm. or my neighborhood has enclaves around it and I can kind of flow between that conversation with a colleague and then that video conference that I've got to go off and do by myself. And, and I think that flow and that convenience really help the workplace to be a place where we can make those connections and be a place where we can feel like we're in community with each other. Yeah, yeah. I also found David's insights about quiet quitting really interesting as well because you know it's a big topic everybody's talking about it right now and you know he likened it to engagement which we've done a lot of work on as well and I'm just curious because he was saying one of the things he thought might be behind some of that is leadership skills particularly empathy and I know you've written and thought a lot about our need to show empathy at work. So what did you think about that? Yeah, I thought that was so interesting as yeah. well. And that new need for leadership skills. And he talked about how leaders are going through their own things too in right. terms of reward and threat. And I always say, you know, leaders have so much emotional labor they have to do. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe more now than, than before, right? There's so much pressure on leaders in so many ways. And one of the things that leaders can do is really create the, the conditions for empathy. And I think sometimes things get in their way in terms of doing that really effectively. Like leaders may think, oh, I don't have time for this, right? Mm -hmm. I gotta add this to my plate. Right. But expressing empathy, attending, asking questions, listening, tuning in to what you see in employees can so much be part of the day-to-day -day work and part of the work that you're doing anyway. I think one of the challenges, and he talked about this too, is when you're a leader, you need to lead virtually. And sometimes you don't see everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes empathy is easier when you see people in person. You get yes. that many more nonverbal cues than just what you can see on the screen. And so surely, you know, hybrid work is here to stay and we got to get good at it on the screen. But when we're in person, we can really understand what other people are going through, maybe to a greater degree. Yeah, it feels more natural to talk about somebody's weekend or talk about something that is going on in somebody's life when you're together. You know, it feels like when, when you pop on that screen for the virtual meeting, it's down to business. Like, let's get going right away, you know, and we don't always take time for those kinds of interactions that are that are really important. I know I, I've noticed that and, and feel like I have to work at it a lot. And so we have these new habits that we have to develop as leaders. And when David talked about this idea of hybrid work and how people are responding to it and that we need to give people a sense of autonomy as well as this sense of fairness. And 
you know, I know that can be difficult to do, but I know you've worked with a lot of clients who are looking at their hybrid work strategies and trying to figure it out. So what do you think about that? Yeah, we have so many questions from customers on this topic because by definition, different people are working in different ways. So that creates a sense of potential um, perception of less fairness. And so when we see customers who seem to be doing it really well, one of the things they're doing is being really clear about their principles overall, the mm -hmm. principles that will guide the options that people get for where and when and how they work and the level of control they have over that. And then they're really transparent about that um, and about why certain roles or jobs get to work differently. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is that customers who are having more success with it are focused on the content of the work mm -hmm. to guide some of those decisions more than hierarchy or pay level or that kind of thing just like how the work gets done and the content and nature of the work may drive how many choices and the nature of the choices that they're giving people so i think i think those are some of the things that we're seeing that start to balance because we know that control and autonomy are so important you right right like you you want to give people more choices about when and where they work and how they work and and the workplace can be a place where people have more of those choices and they feel more tangible yeah and this concept that we've been working on now for a while about designing a workplace to be more like a community and a neighborhood you know when you talk about those kinds of cues that people need to have kind of different behavior that feels like one one strategy that organizations can use to help give people that sense of autonomy that David was talking about because they would have more choices. But it also feels like an opportunity for fairness because if we all have the opportunity to be able to choose, you know, where we work based on what we need, you know, that feels like a more fair kind of work environment than maybe we've had in the past. Yeah, and I love the point that you made with David too about inclusivity, right? Like mm -hmm. we all have differences in the way that sure. we work and how we prefer to work. And so having that variety and settings and the um, workplace, and then also having a culture that gives us permission to use right. them, right? right? Like it's okay if I go, to an enclave to take a quick call and nobody's gonna, you know, throw yeah. their brow or raise their eyebrows that yep. I'm doing that, right? Or or it's okay that I go to do some of my heads down work, maybe in a work cafe and I can be alone together. I can feel like I'm with other people. So I get that sense of connection that David talked about and I've made a choice. I'm controlling my day and I've got some autonomy about going there for that set of work at the moment versus, you know, sitting at my workstation all the time. Yeah. And that's an important new skill for, for some of us to be able to get comfortable with people using a diverse range of spaces to work in. You know, it's no longer, uh, you know, if somebody's at their desk, they're performing, you know, that they have those, the culture says that they have the option to be able to move and be where they need to be. Yeah, and I think that movement, if it helps us to be more effective, right, we get that sense of esteem from work. Like, mm -hmm. work has this really important role to play in our lives for mm -hmm. individuals as well. Like, it really is a place where we express our talents and we contribute to our community. And so um, so I think that part of it, it's the workplace and then it's the work and how that 
is a way that we yep. feel connected with other people yep. and feel that sense of esteem and and, um, and feel those bonds with yes. each other that we need each other that you know yeah uh, it's the reward response again. yes yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly well thanks Tracy I really appreciate you spending some time talking with me about this it was a really great conversation with David so thanks for sharing it with me yeah thank you thank you for being here with us for our first episode of Work Better. If you enjoyed the conversation, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit us at steelcase.com slash subscribe to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas all delivered to your inbox. Join us next week for my conversation with Annie Murphy-Paul. She's the author of The Extended Mind, and she talks about the power of thinking outside the brain and fills us in on the science behind groupiness. So we hope you join us to learn more about that. Thanks again for being here. We hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. This episode of Work Better is produced by Rebecca Charbowski. Creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison and Emily Cowdery. Technical support is from Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. Digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks and editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios.